Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them uh, with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This is God's word. Lord, this morning in uh, pre-gathering prayer, I was just impressed so much with all the preparation that goes into uh, putting on the service here today. Everybody from the people making the coffee to those who are planning to, for Ninos, uh, Lord, to the pre-gathering prayer, uh, to the sound team, to the worship team, Lord, uh, just so much goes into each Sunday morning. I thank you for all the servants in the church that have uh, just... Uh, given their time and dedication uh, to preparing for today's message. Lord, and I uh, thank you for our pastor, Andrew, and his preparation for today's service. Lord, uh, give us listening ears so that we may hear and uh, take these things to heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Yeah, give a hand for Bob. Come on now. It was a rather ordinary day for Bartimaeus. He proceeded to go about his daily routine, business as usual. We find him in Luke chapter 18, sitting in his usual spot, doing what he does every day. He's asking for help. You see, being blind had all sorts of challenges in the ancient world. Even getting to his spot was faced with great difficulty. But what others would look in on and see as challenging or humbling, Bartimaeus just said it was ordinary. He was unable to work a job in the ancient world, which left him at the mercy of other people's generosity. And so as we find him, he is sitting on the side of the road, begging for spare change. These were simply the cards that he was dealt. Sitting on the dusty, dirty roadside, it was an ordinary day for Bartimaeus, until it wasn't. Suddenly, a large crowd of people begin to pass by him, and he can hear the excitement in the air. This crowd was definitely not ordinary, so Bartimaeus, curious as to what's going on, asks the question, what is happening? And a voice emerges from the crowd, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. The name sends a rush of hope through his body, you see, because he has heard all about this Jesus of Nazareth. Rumors of him had been spreading all throughout Jericho. He was the street rabbi who is turning city after city upside down. The religious leaders, they hated him. They scoff at his name. But the poor, the rejected, the broken, they loved him. Rumor was, this street rabbi had the power to heal. 
There were stories of, of people with leprosy, their skin being cleansed. Stories of people who were deaf being able to hear. And there was even one really crazy rumor that Jesus actually rose somebody from the dead. Could this be my chance, Bartimaeus thought. Bartimaeus always wondered what it was like to see. He felt the warmth of the sun on his face. But he always wondered what it looked like as it bounced off the surface of the sea. He smelt the fragrance of flowers along his daily path. But he always wondered to himself how beautiful they actually were. He heard the sound of nearby children playing and laughing. But he always wondered what joy he might experience as he looked in upon theirs. Oh, how he longed to see. As the commotion grew louder, he realized this is my opportunity. And so, in a pure act of desperation, Bartimaeus yells, Son of David, have mercy on me. And this went over like nails on a chalkboard. His voice shocked the crowd. How dare he interrupt and disrespect Jesus this way? So the crowd begins to silence him, reminding him of his place in society. No beggar beckons the rabbi. So they shush and silence him. But you see, the crowd did not have the power to silence his desperation. He had carried the weight and shame of asking as long as he could remember. So he crows, cries even louder a second time. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then a silence breaks out. And that's broken by another voice. Bring him to me. Suddenly, the crowd begins to beckon Bartimaeus. Well, get on your feet. He's calling you. And overwhelmed by excitement, Bartimaeus begins to fix himself up. He takes off his beggar's cloak. He dusts himself off. He tries to clean himself up as he gets ready to meet this man, Jesus. He pushes his way through the crowd. And he gets to where this man is. And in a moment, it is silent. But then the silence is broken by a voice as warm as the sun he felt on his face. What do you want me to do for you? You see, this question had the power to push aside all the mental clutter that surrounds him and cut straight to the heart of his longing. And it's this question that I want to ask you this morning. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Jesus, who is the same yesterday in Jericho, today in Los Lunas, and forever in the kingdom, comes to you now and asks you this question. What do you want me to do for you? I want to invite you for a moment to just close your eyes and sit with that question. Set your notes or whatever you have in your hands aside so that you're just free of distraction. And let the question get to the core of your longing. What do you want Jesus to do for you?
If you're unsure, would you ask the Spirit of God to show you what your deepest longing is? When you're ready, would you just quietly, in your heart, in your mind, name your longing to Jesus? Jesus, in your kindness, would you meet all these longings laid before you now? Amen. Today, we're continuing in our series, The Sunday Gathering, Liturgy, Formation, and the People of God. In this series, we are slowing down to examine what we do when we gather and why we do what we do when we gather. And today, we're going to be talking about prayer and response. Now, I could think of no better question or story to launch us into our conversation today than the very question that Jesus asks Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Today, this, ser- this story is going to serve as a launch point for us and then we were going to walk through a small portion of James's letter to communities of Jesus about how a community of Jesus is to engage with prayer and response. And I want to do this today through six movements. It's kind of a lot of movements, so I hope you're ready. Did you have your coffee? Okay, three of you. The rest of you, please make your way to the back. Joking. But six movements. Hang in there with me. I promise I will go as fast as possible. All right. Here are the movements. The God that hears, the community that cares, the wounds that ache, the people that respond, the house that prays, and the one that heals. First, the God who hears. In the story of Bartimaeus, we find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of Jesus' life. And what's incredible to me is that we see in a sea of voices, Jesus hones in on Bartimaeus's. All of these people want to encounter Jesus. They want something from him. They want to ask him something. They're curious about him. Jesus is being pulled in a thousand different directions. And from way off on the side, Jesus hears a voice cry out to him. Son of David, have mercy on me. You see, in this cacophony of noise, Jesus focuses in on a cry for mercy. You see, all throughout the scriptures, we get a clear picture. The God who is embodied in the person of Jesus is the one who hears and sees. A brief story comes to mind. It's the story of Hagar. She's a servant to Abram and Sarai, who will later become Abraham and Sarah. And Abram and Sarai at this time are frustrated because of their infertility. God has given him a promise that they will bear a son, and the son has not come. And so in frustration, Sarai and Abram take things into their own hands. And so Sarai tells Abram to sleep with her servant, Hagar, and maybe she will bear him a son. And Abram agrees, and she does. She conceives, and this fills Sarai with rage. The text tells us that Sarai begins to be abusive and humiliating towards Hagar. And it is so much so that in an act of pure desperation, Hagar 
flees to the desert. And in the middle of nowhere, the Lord meets with Hagar. The text tells us that an angel of the Lord comes and speaks with her. And after this interaction, which we do not have time to break out today, this interaction that he has with Hagar, this is what she says. Genesis 16, 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. She names her son Ishmael, which means God hears. Now, there's so much to say about this story that we do not have time to get into today, but here's what I want to draw your attention to. Hagar, who in the ancient world had no power or hope, God sees and hears her. This immigrant slave, this pregnant immigrant slave suffering in the middle of nowhere, God responds to her cries. Now, this story is just one. I could tell you story after story after story of God's heart towards people. And it gives us this portrait of the compassion of God. In Exodus 34, Moses wants to see God. He's like, I want to see you. I want to know what you're like. God warns him of the reality of what he's asking for, but here's what he tells him. God says, I'm going to tell you what my name is. And it's this beautiful picture of who God's character is. When a name in the ancient world was not just something slapped on you that your parents liked. It was significant. It had meaning about character and qualities. And so when somebody would share their name, they're telling you who they are. And so when God tells his name to Moses, he's saying what he is. And Exodus 34 is this beautiful passage where God defines who he is. But do you know the first thing that he says of himself? Holy? No. Powerful? No. The first word he utters out of his mouth is this word, compassionate. I am compassionate. In Hebrew, it's the word rahum. Can you say that? Ooh, even some of you did the phlegm. I'm super proud. Yes. <laughs> rahum. So the word, its, its original root word means literally womb means womb, a, a, a mother's womb. Say that 10 times fast. A mother's womb. And it describes a parent's care for their child, a mother's love for her child. All throughout the scriptures, God refers to himself as such, like a mother caring for her children. Now, this is um, uh, an emotional word, and it's often used to describe God's love for his people, how his heart moves towards them, to rescue them. In the Psalms, this phrase compassionate is parallel to this phrase stirring of the heart. So compassion is this emotional word often described to about God. But listen, it's not only an emotional word. It's, it's, it's a word describing God's action. What motivates God's action? The scriptures tell us that God is compassionate, and that leads, us to, leads him to forgive us and to deliver us. God just doesn't feel for you. He moves towards you to heal you and rescue you. And we see this abundantly clear in the life of Jesus. You see, Jesus shows up on the scene, and he steps into a gathering just like this. And he's responsible for doing what Bob just did, which was read the scriptures. And as he comes in, he reads the scriptures, and this is what happens in Luke chapter 4. He reads this portion from Isaiah 61. He says this, 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying he's come. He is the Mashiach, the Messiah. In Jesus' context, this is met in an unexpected way. They tried to kill him because he was making audacious claims. But as we journey through Luke's gospel and the other gospels, here's what we see. Jesus does exactly what he said he's going to do. Moment after moment, Jesus is not only teaching about the kingdom, but he's ushering it in through healing and restoration. The, the blind see, the lame walk. He is doing the very things the, the prophet Isaiah said the Mashiach would do. Jesus isn't just talking about the kingdom. He's embodying it, saving and healing people. At several points along the way, the gospel authors tell us that Jesus is filled with this same compassion that God has. Or he's moved with compassion in other portions. And so God's compassionate care, forgiveness, and rescue is embodied in the person of Jesus. Jesus embraces the sick. He cares for the outcast. And Jesus is deeply moved by human suffering. And it is this ultimate expression of compassion that leads Jesus to suffering on the cross for humanity, to bring about our rescue, and to bring us near to God. And this compassionate God rises from the grave, and as he does, he tells his disciples to continue this ministry that he started. So here we see clearly there is a God who cares, who hears, who sees. And now this very God commissions his people to continue that ministry along. As Jesus ascends to the Father, he tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses to proclaim and demonstrate the reality of the kingdom. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus promises the coming of the Spirit, and he tells his disciples they must wait till the Spirit comes because this Spirit's going to empower them to continue his ministry. That the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave will be residing within his disciples. And sometime later at Pentecost, the church is empowered by the Spirit. Now this new Spirit-empowered community is going to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. The New Testament authors take the language that the church is the body of Christ. That the church is Jesus' representation, continuation of his ministry here on earth. And so Psalm 133 gives us this beautiful picture of what this spirit-empowered community would look like. And it looks like two things. Oil and do. I know that's exactly what you were expecting, right? Oil and do. 
Psalm 133 says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people gather together in unity. It is like oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Kind of a weird picture. Can we be honest to modern ears? Like, if you would be like, how was Sunday service? Dude, it was like oil and dew, right? You friends would think you're psycho. Like you're a little crazy, right? I don't want to go to your church, man. No thanks. If there's oil and dew, I want no part of that. So I hope that as we kind of tease this out a touch, you can kind of see the beauty of what the psalmist is trying to do here. So it's the image of oil running down uh, Aaron's beard. It's a specific moment happening in Exodus 29. Aaron's being installed as a priest among some other uh, individuals from his household are being installed as priests. And in the ancient world, the way that you would set somebody up to be a priest is you'd have to do something called anointing, which is the process by which you would literally pour oil on them. That is what anointing means. It means the pouring of oil on somebody, to anoint it. And so in the Old Testament, all throughout the scriptures, the oil was symbolic of God's presence. All this New, New Testament and, and all the scripture authors, rather, use this image of oil to talk about the spirit of God. And so as the oil is being poured on Aaron, it's this image, it's a symbol of God's presence residing on them, namely the spirit of God resting on them. The picture that the psalmist is trying to paint is this. The community of Jesus, spirit empowered, that we are one another's priests. Here's what Eugene Peterson has to say. He says, talking about Psalm 133, he says, Here, the oil is anointing oil, marking the person as a priest. Living together means seeing the oil flow over the head, down the face, through the beard, onto the shoulders of the other. And when I see that, I know that my brother, my sister, is my priest. When we see the other as God's anointed, our relationships are profoundly affected. The priest's job was to represent God to the people and represent people to God. He was an, an intermediary. Now, because what has happened in Jesus, guess what? Y'all are priests now. The priesthood is no longer limited to just Aaron's household. It is all of God's people. Think about what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you all are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a what? Holy priesthood. Now, there were all kinds of jobs that the priest had, the sacrificial system, singing and worship, but one of the primary jobs the priest had was the task of intercession, praying on behalf of God's people, communing with God on behalf of God's people. And so the image we get is clear, that a spirit-empowered community looks like a community who's one another's priests, who's doing the work of praying for one another. Richard Foster says this, as priests appointed and anointed by God, we have the honor of going before the Most High on behalf of others. This is not optional. It is a sacred obligation and a precious privilege of all who take up the yoke of Christ. So this image of, of oil running down on the beard is this picture that a community of Jesus, spirit-empowered, would do the work of praying for one another. The next image is that of dew. Now, um, 
we live in a very dry climate, so dew is rather strange for us. I'm not talking about mountain dew, like the drink, right? We're talking about something that occurs. When, uh, in high alpine uh, areas, there's, there's not rainfall, but it's this moisture in the air. There's this dew on the ground. So if you were to fall asleep on a mountaintop, you would wake up drenched, covered in this stuff, dew. Zion, the mountain he's talking about, is a lot like New Mexico, dry, arid. Herman, this other mountain, is like parts of Colorado, abundant with life, teeming with greenery, etc. The image that the psalmist is saying here is like the dew that would fall on the mountains in Colorado would come to the dry, arid desert. The picture is, is this life-giving water source with the power and potential for something to be teeming and flourishing shows up in a place unexpected. And so the imagery is that the people of God coming together are something wildly unexpected and beautiful, teeming with potential. And the invitation for us is to see one another like that, to see one another through this lens. Again, Eugene Peterson says, a community of faith flourishes when we view each other with this expectancy, wondering what God will do today in this one, in that one. When we are in community with, with those Christ loves and redeems, we are constantly finding out new things about them. They are new persons each morning, endless in possibilities. We explore fascinating depths of their friendship and share the secrets of their quest. It is impossible to be bored in such a community, impossible to feel alienated among such people. The image that the psalmist gives us is that of oil and dew, giving us the image of spirit-empowered community as one shaped by being one another's priests and seeing one another's redemptive potential. It is both in the caring for the needs and aches of today and seeing and building towards the beauty of tomorrow. This is the picture of who the church is. It is continuing the ministry of Jesus by caring for the needs of today and bringing forth the beauty of tomorrow in his people. This is the image we see. And this leads us to our teaching text. James says this, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Who's read the book of James? No, no, like, don't feel bad if you haven't. All good. Uh, James is a pretty hard-hitting book. You see his personality kind of show in that, and, like, James plays no games, right? He's not, like, going to, you know, uh, cut corners or pull punches. He's going to tell it like it is. And the end of James's letter is one of the most weird ones in all of the New Testament because he seems to just, like, change gears entirely. And he kind of just rattles off some things at the end of his letter. And this is a part of that end of the letter where he kind of just does this brief teaching about prayer in the community of Jesus to address some concerns that are happening. You see, James is writing to a church who's being persecuted. 
There are people who are suffering for their faith, dying for their faith. There are people who are experiencing illness and trouble. And so James writes them what this community should look like and how this community should respond to what's happening around them. James assumes that in various communities that he's writing to, it's not just one church he's writing to, but multiple, that there was going to be suffering, and there's going to be people who are encouraged, and there's going to be sickness, and there's going to be sin. There's going to be all this culmination of things. Now, uh, here, James kind of breaks things out into a couple different categories, and the first one that he does is that of suffering. Now, uh, the NIV translates this trouble. Not a bad translation, not my favorite. I think the, the most accurate way to translate that, and that's like, I'm not just saying this because I'm preferential, it's pretty consistent across the board, is actually the word suffering. I think trouble encapsulates that, but it has this idea of, of general suffering behind it, and it has all sorts of things falling underneath that umbrella, various struggles and hardships that an individual can face. And it makes me think of the line that Jesus had to say, where he says, in this world you will have what? Trouble, suffering, hardship. It's a reality of living in the world today. James assumes the community of Jesus is no different, that they will encounter suffering. There's suffering in this room right now. There are people who walk to the door that are carrying in their bodies suffering, that are carrying in their lives suffering. This isn't a maybe. This is a reality of the matter. It's assumed that this is present among us. And so James addresses those people who are suffering. The next category of people, as he says, is, is anyone among you happy? Again, don't love happy here. Because uh, it makes it sound like, I mean, somebody paid for your, your coffee at Starbucks, and, you know, the coupon worked or whatever, and the drive here was pleasant, and nobody was fighting. Happy. Not what he's talking about here. The, the, a better translation is encouraged. So it's not that, uh, there's a lack of stressful or hard things happening in the community, it's that the person who's enduring it actually feels encouraged by it. You may have a similar experience when you've gone through a long period of suffering. There are low moments and there are high moments. That even in the midst of suffering, there's moments where you feel encouraged. A word from a friend, sharing meals with somebody, something happens along the ways that just lifts your spirits. It's not that suffering is no longer present, it's that your posture in it is that of being encouraged. The next group category of people is those who are sick. Um, and so what's, what's happening here is he's not jumping back and forth. He's describing everybody's hurting, but it's our postures towards it. Scott McKnight has this to say. The contrast here is not between suffering and the good life, but within a group where everyone is undergoing, uh, I don't know what that word is supposed to be, or suffering, some of whom are struggling, others of whom have taken courage. So uh, the idea here is everybody's hurting, but how are we responding to it? Some people in the community are also sick. Now, this is the most general term James could have used for sick. It means all kinds of sickness. It could be emotional. It could be physical. It could be spiritual. All of these things. It could even be somebody on the verge of dying. And so James used this word to describe all of those in the community who are frail and are in need, those who are sick. And lastly, James couples this to those who may have sinned. James acknowledges here that trouble and suffering can be brought about in an individual's life because of sin. Uh, not just physical, but also mental or spiritual sickness can come from sin. Now, just because if you came in with a cough today, it's not because you sinned, to be clear. But he's saying that's possible. That's a reality. 
Some of you have been in that season. You've been engaging in sin, and it's wearing on your body. You feel the weight of that. You're losing sleep. You've lost appetite. As, as David would say in the, in the Psalms, my, my, my bones feel like they're wasting away. This is what James is touching on here. Why do we bring each of these categories of people up? Well, in a moment, we're going to get to what James says to these people. But here's what I want to acknowledge first. In the room today with us, there are all kinds of needs. What sets the community of Jesus apart is the reason we're all in here is because we are all in desperate need of grace. That's what sets the community of Jesus apart. We all gather together because we fundamentally know that we need more than what we can bring to the table. We need Jesus, namely. But also we need community. We need prayer. We need encouragement. So unlike other gatherings where you have to pretend like you have it all together, the church is meant to be a hospital for the hurting. I acknowledge that the church often is not. I acknowledge that oftentimes there's a pressure when you walk in the building to act like you have it all together, to act like things have been going perfectly fine, to act like you're not suffering or hurting, and to pretend that everything is, oh, praise the Lord, brother, bless the Lord, I'm so happy to be here, when in reality, you cried the whole way here. You haven't slept in weeks. And what a tragedy that is. The church should be the place where you could be fully yourself. Tears and all. And so, I asked you this morning, what do you want Jesus to do for you? And my hunch is, every single person in here had a need they wanted to have met. Every single person here had something they wanted Jesus to do for them. The community of Jesus is where we are to be able to bring this need forward. You see, Jesus empowers his people, me and you, to continue this very ministry that he begun, that we saw realized in Bartimaeus' story. Now, this ministry is not just for those who are outside of the house, those who are lost, those who are not following Jesus, but it's also for inside the house. You see, Jesus empowers his people to continue his ministry to his own body. All throughout the New Testament, we see how the people of God are called to care for one another. The community of Jesus is organized in such a way that it cares for itself. And the image that the church functions like is like a hospital tending to its own wounded. And I want you to notice how James calls this community to tend to its wounds. So in this short passage, James gives instructions on what this community is to do. And the first place I want to begin with that is James instructs this community to respond to needs. Not just to be aware of their existence, but actually to respond. Is anyone, is anyone in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone sick? Let them call the elders of the church. Is anyone happy? Let them sing. There is a let them behind every single one of these scenarios. There is a response assumed to every single need. And so in those who are wounded in the gathering, there is an assumption that something is going to happen, that the church is going to respond to its own needs in some kind of a way. And the second thing is not just that it would be a response, but that it would be an embodied response, right? Not just, I know someone out there somewhere is hurting. 
We pray for you, brother. But actually, you're hurting? Let them do this. Let them sing with your voice. Let them pray with your whole person. Let them call other people in the church to lay hands on them and to anoint them with oil and to pray for them so that they may be healed. Let them confess their sins to one another. This is all embodied language. Do you see it? That the gathering like this, what's supposed to happen in here is there's supposed to be this communal coming together and responding to the needs that are in our community. Responding to the aches and the wounds that all of us carry. The second thing he tells them to do is very clearly to pray. The individual to pray. If anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. For them to pray through even singing. The, the word translated, translate let them sing a song of praise to God, is actually the word we get the word psalm from. And it carries the idea that this person would be singing through their prayers. And so we see all the instructions. Let them, if there's someone sick, let them call other people so that they could do what? Pray for them. This whole passage is all about the community's response to its own needs. And the number one way we are to respond is with prayer. What did Jesus say that his church would be? A house of what? Prayer. Of really well put together people who wear their Sunday best. Be a house of prayer. Be a place where we carry all that we bring in with us to God, together. That's the picture that we see. And so we continue the ministry of Jesus in this gathering as we pray for one another. This is why when people respond at the end of our service, we pray for them. This is why we have a response at the end of service, is to carve out space for people to respond to their own needs and the needs of the community. And so this is what's been known as prayer ministry, which is a pretty churchy word if I'm super honest, right? It's, it, it, it carries with it all sorts of connotations, but prayer at its simplest is what? It's a conversation with God. And ministry is just a really Christian way of saying service, serving one another. And so prayer ministry is how we serve one another through prayer. John Wimber, one of the goats, says this, Prayer ministry is meeting the needs of others with the resources of God. Meeting the needs of others with the resources of God. When we gather, we realize that there's a variety of needs, aches, and wounds in the room. And we believe that Jesus wants to meet those longings, heal those wounds, and mend what is broken. And if, if we are to pray for each other's needs, we are also to pray for one another's redemptive potential. And something happens when the people of God pray. It releases power. James makes it, makes it clear here that something unique and powerful happens when the community surrounds the needs with prayer. He goes as far as saying, the sick will be healed. Even some who are approaching death will be raised up. That when you confess your sins, healing would come. James is thoroughly convinced that when the people of God come to pray, something happens. Something shifts. Now, this doesn't mean that if you don't come forward for prayer, it's not going to happen. Right? God can do whatever he wants, and he does it all the time. He does not need us for that necessarily. But how does God most often work in the world? Through people, through other individuals, in the body of Christ, it's namely through 
one another that this comes forth. So could God do it? Sure. How does God most often do it? 90% of the time in a gathering just like this. He also instructs the community to sing. That those who are actually encouraged, not that they're not facing suffering, but that they're encouraged with it, that what is their job in response? It's to fill the atmosphere with the praises of God. It's to set an environment where the truth about who God is and what he is doing is literally permeating the air and filling the hearts of brothers and sisters. It is to lift the atmosphere of faith in the room and declaring who God is and what he is doing. And so those who are encouraged are by extension of prayer encouraging, blessing, praying for one another. This is why when we do our response time, we sing. We are filling the room with the atmosphere of faith of what God, who God is and what he is up to among us. And lastly, James says that there's healing. We also create space for this in our gatherings too. As people come forward and they are prayed for, we create space for them to receive healing prayer. And so this is what James maps out for this community. With our time remaining, I want to talk about why we do what we do specifically here in this room when when we come to our time of response. Can I name something for us? Response is kind of awkward. Can we be honest about that? A few of you are afraid. Response is kind of awkward. Can we be honest about that? Yeah, a little bit, right? A little bit. Every week I do the same thing. I invite us forward, come up, the space is open for you, right, if you want to. And then everybody does like what you did in high school. You look around to see who the first person would, right, to go. Terrified a little bit, right? And it's the courageous and bold among us who come forward to receive, right? Or the really desperate, right, that come forward to receive. If we could be honest, it's a little awkward. Why? I think a few things. I think, one, we're uncomfortable admitting that we have need. We have need. We're aware of it. We just don't like to admit it. And that might be for a variety of reasons. But most often, it's because we really care about what the other people in the room think about us. Like Andrew said something in the sermon that I don't want people to think I'm responding to, right? I'm responding to something else. He was talking about like someone really struggling like with adultery or something, and then he comes forward and responds, he's going to think that I'm, but I'm not, dude, it was something else, right? All those worries, right? We're worried about what everybody thinks about us. Everybody's doing the exact same thing. Nobody cares about what you're doing. They're worried about themselves and what everyone's thinking of them, right? And so... There's all sorts of hindrances and blocks to response. Here's what I want to name first and foremost. I want to name that God is doing something. When we gather together as a community, something happens. Um, We've been talking about this for several weeks, but as we worship, as we hear God's word go forth, as we come together, God is doing something in our midst. And so when we gather together as a community, we're not starting something. We're joining God in what he's already doing. How many times has this happened to you? You've come to a gathering like this, and God has met you with exactly what you've been looking for, what you've been longing for. I've had numerous people come up to me after a sermon saying, this was exactly what I needed to hear. I don't have access to your Alexa or your cameras to know what's going on in your house, to know this is what you need, right? God has been doing this in you already, and you show up here, and he just confirms it. Our worship team reflects the same thing. That song we sang today is exactly what I needed to hear. 
They're not orchestrating things behind here, right? What songs do we choose? Because exactly, you know, I know Joe needs this or whatever. No. The Spirit of God is already doing something. We're just joining him and what he's already up to in the world. And so when we come to a time of response, it's not now there's all this pressure to do something because something It's saying we're just joining you, Jesus, and what you've already been doing. And this is just a way to us to link arms, to partner in that, to continue your ministry that you've been doing all week long already. I think about the invitation to Bartimaeus. Bring him to me. There's this invitation to respond to the needs and the longings of our hearts as we come and gather together. Now, um, the Sunday gathering functions as a way to just kind of confirm or solidify what's already been happening in you. But second, when God speaks, it's because he wants to act. There's a gap within all of us between our intention and our action, right? I say I want to be a good dad, sometimes not a super great dad, right? I say I want to be this, but I'm actually that. There's a gap that exists between us there. The gap does not exist for God. When he says something, it's because he wants to do something. His action and his intention are interwoven. And so when God speaks something to his community, it's not so we're just like, oh, that's good. I'm going to put that in a journal and never look at it ever again, right? It's because he wants to do something. When the Spirit of God places his finger on something, it's not so just you're aware of it. It's because he wants to move in that place. He wants to bring you from the, from the place of inspiration to the place of participation. He wants to move you from the place of, wow, that really spoke to me, to now that's actually going to be embodied in my life. That's what the Spirit wants to move us towards. And so we create response time not for us. I'm not like, guys, I was super stressed about this sermon. I really hoped you like it. Please come forward and make me feel better about it, right? It's not for the worship team to be like, we know we played really good today if a lot of people respond. Response is for you. It's for you to name and to notice what God is doing among you and begin the steps towards obeying those things and asking for more of those things. It's creating space and opportunity for you to bring your needs, aches, pains, longings, what the Spirit is speaking you to God, and for God to meet you in that, in an embodied way. When God speaks, it's because he wants to act. Now, we do this with our bodies. You're like, well, dude, can I just respond from like the comfort of my seat? Sure, you can. But you're not a brain on a stick. You know a lot of the right things to do. How often do you do them? There's a gap. You close the gap by not letting it just be inspiration, but letting it be action. There's something that happens when you step forward into something and saying, yes. You're telling your body, I'm not just hearing something in my mind. There's something deeper going on, and I want all of it. It is a declaration of faith to God. I hear you, and I want to hear you more. That's the invitation there. So you are not... You're not a brain and a stick. You are a body. And so for you to respond, that includes your body. And so when we do response time, we have people come to the front. This place isn't like super anointed and holy or something, right? It's not this section of five feet that's like really anointed holy ground and the rest of it's normal. We do this as a way for you to signify and identify this is what's happening in me. And also to normalize it. 
People encountering the Lord Jesus should be normal in the church, don't you think? People responding to what God speaks should be really normal in the church, don't you think? This should be the place that should be happening frequently. And so we do it at the front to say, this is totally normal. God loves to do this stuff all the time. And we're just joining him in what he's already doing. We're bringing the needs, the longings, the things that the Spirit's speaking before the church to say, this is what God loves to do. And ultimately, it leads to a place of encounter. That in this place of responding and being prayed for, often are the most healing and mountain-moving moments of an individual's life. That when they actually come forward and, 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 and receive prayer in response, that something actually shifts within their heart. Not because the person who prayed is like a really good person at praying and they did such a spe- spectacular job, but it's because they come and encounter the living Christ through his body, through his people. And that's what we're responding to do is to encounter the Lord Jesus. And so when we conclude our gatherings, we create space to respond to God. To say, Lord, we hear what you're doing and we want more. We create that space. James concludes this portion by saying, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I jump back to the story of Bartimaeus. Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And almost without hesitation, you know what Bartimaeus says? He says, I want to see. And Jesus responds to him, your faith has made you well. And he receives his sight. Now, if you just received your sight, what would be the first thing that you did? I don't know, go look at everything humanly possible, right? What does Bartimaeus do? He stays. He praises what God has done. And then he follows Jesus. He follows Jesus. And then you know what happens from that moment? The text tells us in Luke 18 that the rest of the people there all began to praise God because of what happened. This story functions as an invitation to you. You all have need. Every person in this room does. We've named it to start our service. Jesus wants to meet that need. I believe that he does. Even when we were doing that practice, I saw some of you come to tears because that's how palpable it is to you right now, this need. Jesus wants to meet that. The Spirit's highlighting that because he wants to do something. When he speaks, it's because he wants to act. Bartimaeus had to have the courage to say something, to cry for mercy, and to get up, to take off his beggar's clothes, and to come to Jesus. Sometimes, the thing you're longing for is on the other side of a moment of courage to just name your need to God and to respond to what he's doing and encounters on the other end of that. And some of you are needing that courage to to do that, to respond in that way. Bartimaeus had no issues naming to Jesus his need. I want to see. 
What do you want Jesus to do for you today? We're going to respond now. We're going to do what we've been talking about this whole time right now. As we're, as we're, as I've just been putting this together and been thinking about this, there are people in the room who are suffering right now. You're just hurting. And Jesus wants to meet you. And um, I want to ask you to have the courage to bring your need before God. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to come up here to the front. You're going to open your hands like this. It's just a sign and a symbol to God saying, here's what I need, Lord. And somebody from our community is going to come and lay hands on you and pray for you. And bless that desire. Bless that longing. I'm confident Jesus will meet us there. Will you join me in standing? There's also people here who need healing. And I don't just mean physically, though I do mean physically, but emotionally, mentally. have a sense that there's people in this room right now who are just been plagued by worry. Worry's been plaguing your heart and you want reprieve from that. You want relief from that, release from that. We believe Jesus wants to bring healing to you. For some of you, it is healing in your body. There's something that's been aching and hurting and you long for Jesus to heal that. We believe that Jesus can heal that and so we're going to ask. doesn't mean he will, but man, we're going to ask that he would. And so um, if that's you, if you need healing, I'm actually going to ask you to respond on this side of the room. We're going to have a couple people here with oil that want to anoint you and pray for you and pray for healing. And the rest of you, if you're just wanting to respond to what God is doing in you and, and bring your longing to Jesus, I'd ask you just to come on this side and people are going to be praying for you here. And if you don't have a need, which I'd be really surprised by, but maybe you're encouraged by it, Would you fill the room with faith as we sing and declare who God is and what he's doing among us? Let's respond to what God is doing in the room.